Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Santosh here, Peds Infectious Diseases doc and researcher. And joining us again is friend of the show and pharmacist extraordinaire, Eleanor O'Rangers. Yay! Hello, everybody. Yay! <laughs> so, it's been a couple weeks, and usually, I think you know what it means when we're on an alternate week. Mm. It's time for a... Journal Club! Which in recent times have become exclusively COVID Journal Club. Which... (laughs) But our listeners seem to be okay with it. Yay! Yay! But we don't really get a lot of feedback from them, so we don't know. Oh, listen. (laughs) This can't be the whole episode. (laughs) Yay! But it will be some of the episode. Okay. (laughs) So let's once again take a dive into what's, what's new in the world of COVID. In one of our previous conversations, I had briefly mentioned, or Eleanor, you had briefly brought up the existence of Mr. Freeze style bubble helmets Ah, uh, to replace ventilators. And I am pleased to report that I have now seen these in action as a hospital that I've worked at is making use of. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the studies that actually that actually led to this, because this is from 2016. We didn't just suddenly come up with these bubble helmets or bobbleheads, as I like to think of them, out of nowhere. (laughs) This was studied as far back as 2016 for patients with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And 
It was published in JAMA to try and see if you could have an intermediate step or something better than a traditional BiPAP, but not quite as aggressive as being mechanically ventilated and intubated. Now, this is really helpful right now because modern hospitals in the setting of the coronavirus really can't make use of BiPAP for patients who are having difficulty breathing. And that's because it has a risk of aerosolizing and thus further spreading the virus and infecting the healthcare workers trying to take care of people, which means we've lost a major tool in our belt that we can use when people are struggling to breathe and losing oxygen. So in a study like this, they place the little bubble helmet over your head. It creates a much greater seal and you're constantly surrounded by a pressure of air so you don't get breakdown of the skin around your face and you don't have quite as much of that claustrophobic sensation that would make you be non-compliant or take it off. That's basically what the mechanics were. The 83 patients who had ARDS and were trialed on this ended up doing better than BiPAP and staying out of the intensive care unit for longer and staying off intubation for longer. Definitely. Now, this work was done at University of Chicago, I think, right? Yeah. The original study was in 2016. And then in 2018, they did follow-up. And only 18% of those who had worn a helmet required an endotracheal tube versus 61% of those wearing a face mask. That's a pretty huge difference. Yeah. Uh, and then even when they were ventilated, the helmet group had on average more ventilator-free days, about 28 days uh, without being intubated versus 12 and a half. So that's, you know, that's quarantine for two weeks versus a month with a tube down your throat. So again, pretty significant uh, advantages. And you're going to be preserving ICU beds. The only issue is this is not a widespread, widespread available technology at the moment. Uh, I believe our hospital only has maybe like three of these helmets. So it's the only thing we can do is really kind of buy ourselves a little bit of additional time um, before intubating somebody. But for every person who's kept unintubated, the better we have of treating them. So I thought that was a real nice story, and I'm glad I got a chance to follow up on it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there's like one company right now in Texas that's producing these helmets, and they've obviously had a huge uptick uptick in demand, and they're trying to hire, I think, additional personnel to try to create these uh, these helmets. But uh, I think it's really fascinating. This is so cool because, you know, we have you here, Eleanor, as a, uh, not only as a healthcare uh, specialist in pharmacy, but also, you know, in space. And this is a lot of what you deal with is changes in pressures. Um, I really love, we have an analogy to this one in pediatrics called bubble CPAP. Um, which I don't know if you guys use a lot in adults, but um, instead of providing the back pressure with air on a CPAP, we actually put the tubing through a um, just a thing of water, uh, the middle of the tube, to provide you know that just constant kind of back pressure, which is essentially you know atmosph atmospheric pressure plus the um, the water pressure. And then the bubbling allows for that to fluctuate a little bit according to what the kid wants to do at the time in terms of expanding their lungs or not. Um, but yeah, it's it's really neat to see 
you know, using pressure differentials in this kind of a way, like essentially increasing the atmospheric pressure around the heat <laughs> rather than shoving air, you know, forcefully, you, you know, putting on a CPAP or a BiPAP mask um, or, you know, having an artificial tube going straight down into the lungs. Um, but this goes along a lot with um, some of the other interventions that we found works, which has to do with pressures and positioning. Like we learned very early on that if you put people prone rather than supine, meaning they're on their stomach rather than on their back, um, this also helps them aerate their lungs because of physics. And to that point, I'm starting to see some things here or there. Granted, not necessarily controlled trial data, but there's also talk about people doing exercises to, with deep inspiration and things to open up. Also, breathing techniques that some people are advocating to try to maintain lung function or a greater use of, of lung volume if someone becomes ill with COVID-19. And I don't know if there's any real science behind that, but that is something that I'm that I'm starting to see more and more. In fact, I think Chris Cuomo, the CNN anchor who was just hospital, uh, was a home with COVID-19, um, was sort of espousing the virtues of this type of technique, I think, on the Today Show, although he's not a physician, of course. Well, not being a physician hasn't stopped lots of people from commenting. On the <laughs> <laughs> I just, oh my God. I This is one of the big things which I I'm very, very grateful that I get to share the mic with you guys who actually understand what's going on. Interestingly, talking about putting people prone and on these different techniques, one of the papers I found this week, and oh my gosh, there's so many papers and so few of them have had a chance to undergo peer review. It's a real fire hose of information out there. (laughs) But one of the interesting ones actually talked about the reason we see such a huge variety of outcomes in this COVID syndrome is that there may be two different phenotypes. And this paper kind of wanted to approach and study them. So this is for, out of Italy mm-hmm. from doctors affiliated with the Medical University of Göttingen Turin Hospital, as well as the Health Center for Human and Applied Sciences in London. They've concluded, they compared COVID-19 pneumonia with actual acute respiratory distress syndrome. And some of the distinctive features from a physiological standpoint are severe hypoxemia, which is low levels of oxygen in the blood, but near normal respiratory system compliance, which is almost never seen in ARDS. Yeah. So the compliance in this case is not you know, the lung doing what it's supposed to do. <laughs> um, we're talking well, about... Well, I mean, kind uh, of. Kind of. Um, I guess the, um, the best way to talk about it is elasticity. So the, uh, the ability for the lungs to expand properly. So a low compliance lung uh, would be, if you're trying to blow up a balloon, a balloon that would be really stiff and hard to blow up versus... Uh, a balloon that's, you know, uh, a low compliance or high compliance is one where you can blow and it expands right up. The problem with COVID or the coronavirus is that it presents like everything. You can see people who are normally breathing but may have low oxygen and be these silent carriers, or they can come in wheezing and in need of 15 to 20 liters of oxygen right off the bat. 
they can respond right away to uh, steroids and breathing masks, or they may not respond at all. They can retain a lot of carbon dioxide. They can respond to being put prone or not. So the same disease presents itself with non-uniformity unless you start to separate it out into two different phenotypes. And the authors propose that there's a lesser type, type L, which is characterized by a low elastance, meaning the ability of the lungs to stretch out, mm-hmm. a low ventilation to perfusion ratio, meaning how much oxygen is actually getting into each breath from the blood, and low recruitability, meaning how easy is it to open up additional parts of the lung when you take in the breath, as well as type H, characterized by high elastance, high right to left shunting, and high recruitability. There's a lot of technical <laughs> and, and physiological terms in there. Uh, but what the important thing of this is, is they each have some very unique findings on CT scan, and I will link to this paper. The high elastance type, or type H, tends to do very poorly. Type L patients are how we first see people coming into the hospital where they'll usually respond well to an increase in the initial fraction of inspired oxygen. You're having enough trouble getting oxygen in because all these things are low. Just up the amount of oxygen in the mix, and you'll see some correction or stabilization. However, we still don't know what makes people transition towards type H, except that the magnitude of the stress on their lungs goes from about 5 to 10 centimeters of pressure to 15. Uh, so you can kind of, hmm, I guess similar to an asthma attack, a severe asthma attack where you see somebody will look normal right before they start to crash. That's what these two phenotypes are being described. So some people only stay in the type L and others fatigue really fast in type L and then tip over into this terrible intubating long long hospital course one i really love you know when you can break these kind of phenotypes down there is pretty good evidence right now that the coronavirus that's circulating is the coronavirus it there isn't a high rate of mutation it isn't really splitting off into different types so more than likely what's going on here is that the immune or inflammatory response is different between these two. And Josh, I think it's fair to say that we're probably going to find a spectrum of disease rather than two super distinct ones. Uh, You can make enough of a division that you can decide you know, how aggressive you need to be and what type of interventions you need to give these two different um, kind of leanings. So I... we. One of the interventions that we really love, uh, my center, but it's also part of the new guidelines from the NIH, is actually not attacking the virus, but actually treating the inflammatory response by giving an antibody or an inhibitor to this inflammatory cytokine called IL-6 Um And it's been remarkably successful. We haven't had enough controlled trials yet, but at least with the patients that we've had, if you actually slow down the inflammation instead of trying to stop the virus itself, um, patients actually turn around and get better. But I'll agree with you, Josh, even when we do that, 
there are two types of patients. There are ones that kind of, you know, in a couple of days, they, you, you no longer have to put them prone. They, they start to come out of their illness really quickly and then they get extubated. And then another type, which is probably the H type that, you know, has to putter along for maybe even a couple of weeks that they'll recover, but it just takes them so, so much longer. And this is also really important when we're trying to figure out when it's safe for people to leave the hospital. Because just like, you know, the big debate right now is when to open up economies, when to open up states, when to go back out into the world. One of my decisions as a hospitalist is to decide when to send people out. You know, I have lots of corona positive patients. Some of them are on high levels of oxygen at, you know, eight to 10 liters, and they're certainly not going anywhere. But others have been chugging along very well for several days on two liters or less, despite being positive. Well, two liters of oxygen is things that people are walking around with normally with heart failure, with COPD. I don't necessarily have to keep people in. So learning to identify phenotypes and how likely somebody is to flip from one to the other. I don't want to send somebody home who's only on two liters of oxygen, and then overnight they jump up to 10. So learning to identify studies like these or tracking patterns can be really helpful in deciding treatment courses and even when it's safe to be discharged, whether it's to a rehab facility, to home, or even to go out into the world. I agree that this approach of trying to minimize the immune response may be one of the more promising approaches. Um, and related to that, I don't know, you may have actually caught this on uh I think KCBS might have actually run this. I know a couple of cities did pick up the story, but there's an immunologist back east who is uh, has been advocating the use of cyclosporin, interestingly enough, oh, yeah. to to mitigate this this cytokine storm. I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. So IL six inhibition, um, you're you're absolutely right. You know, if you that that's the worry that you have with a trial like remdesivir. If you do two phenotypes like this, then a drug company like Gilead could potentially say, oh, let's only use this for like L type instead of H type. <laughs> IL-6, the beautiful thing about it is that it not only has uh, inhibition of IL-6 has precedence in other inflammatory conditions. So the tocilizumab and, uh, God, I can never remember this, clacazumab, um, they, but yeah, <laughs> you know, there are 200 of these goddamn things now. Exactly. Monofabs and, uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, they're wonderful. And it's, it's a new era of, you know, attacking disease by actually modulating the immune system as well as, you know, trying to attack the pathogen. So we know that that particular pathway, rather than cyclosporine, which is going to really broadly shut down yeah. the cellular immune response, it's a nice kind of targeted thing to go for um, to, to suppress immunity. Now, we do have to work on timing, especially when it comes to this L-type and H-type, that it, it really is important that you don't inhibit IL-6 when the body is trying to fight the virus. You have to actually tune down IL-6 when the, um, the virus is suppressed well enough and then the immune system is overreaching. It's going too haywire. So that's going to be a difficult thing, especially with these two different phenotypes, to kind of decide what the best timing is for, for IL-6 inhibition. 
Yeah, and whether whether some of these markers that they're talking about, like increased ferritin or some other other indirect biomarker, might be able to point to where that tipping point where you may want to intervene. Um, well, sure I have my own suspicions that the ferritin seems to be one of the best to track anecdotally for severity. The higher oh, ferritin right. level patients, they just seem to do poorly and require more transfers. Now, again, this is all just this is not conducted in a scientific method at all. It's just, oh, you know, every time I have a patient uh, and I'm following these COVID markers, the ones with this particular one don't do as well. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes a ton of sense because ferritin is a very nonspecific, broad type of inflammatory marker. So it would make a ton of sense that the, the people who are burning through their lungs a lot quicker and causing this H-type uh, you know, phenotype of their lungs that they would have this steep curve of, uh, you know, of the ferritin as an inflammatory marker as an early. Not to mention the cardiac, the cardiac uh, side effects like the myocarditis and things like that too, because ferritin is part of the, I believe it's part of heme as well, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. It so, is. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So as a, for instance, you can't really rely on ferritin if you give a person a blood transfusion. So, you know, that all of a sudden it comes out of play. Um, but uh, no, that's that's a really cool observation. And it's, it's kind of neat that you're mentioning that, Josh, because part of what we're doing when we have these two new phenotypes and we're investigating it is that people are starting to gather data on the clinical progression and the lab markers so that we can perhaps create like a, a clinical and a laboratory course to differentiate one from the other. And at the end of it, you know, you might in fact be right. I might get to write a paper. Yeah. <laughs> well, only if you participate, you can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't just, sh you can't shout a theory over a podcast and then be like authorship, please. <laughs> it's shake and bake. Yeah. And I help. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of treatments and patterns, I also thought it'd be real important. This is a new study that really just came out kind of today. A little bit of update for you on hydroxychloroquine. Eleanor, would you like to share this with us? <laughs> the sad, sad news. Sad saga of hydroxychloroquine. So a couple, couple updates. So First of all, I know Santos, you mentioned about uh, the NIH came out with some guidelines today on mm -hmm. um, management of COVID-19. I will mention as a, as a quick aside, there are a number of guidelines that have come out on management of COVID-19 from a number of, of professional societies. So one of the highlights within the NIH guideline is they do not recommend the administration of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in, in COVID-19 patients. And in fact, they make a specific recommendation against its use. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Particularly because of some of the safety concerns related to uh, cardiac toxicity. But that being said, um, there was a study that uh, has just appeared in the non-peer-reviewed literature, again, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that just came out. Um, it was a retrospective study of about 370 patients from the VA. These were across the, the VA medical centers in the U.S., non-randomized study looking at patients who received hydroxychloroquine alone, hydroxy plus azithromycin, mm -hmm. or standard care, and took a look at outcomes. And those major outcomes were either death or requiring mechanical ventilation. 
Um, Those were your choices. Not great. <laughs> not, not great choices. Now, sure. I, have, I have to say from looking through the article, I mean, certainly the headlines that are out there is, oh, another failure of a hydroxychloroquine study. So yes, the overall results were that um, hydroxychloroquine itself did not seem to have any effect on and may have in fact increased mortality in these patients evaluated. However, there are a lot of confounders in this particular study. Of the 370 patients, uh, all of them, first of all, I think almost all of them are African-American, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. Uh, they all skewed to that older age group over the age of 65. But there was a lot of variety in terms of comorbidities, baseline vital signs, laboratory parameters, et cetera, concomitant medications. So really a mixed bag. And the other issue that they identified as a limitation is that those who te- who received hydroxychloroquine alone, they tended to be the ones presenting with more severe symptoms of COVID. So I think there's a lot of variability, a lot of variables and confounders in this study. They right. attempted to statistically account for those, but I'm not sure how much I can really hang my hat on it. And I'll be interested in seeing the final publication once it's been peer reviewed. I don't think you can make any 100% firm conclusions conclusions from it. Um, And I I really want to see randomized controlled trial data to really get a better (laughs) assessment of this. So. Right. I, I think there there's two things that you said um which are really, really good, you know, to kind of drive this home. Number one, I th- the demographics are huge, right? Because there is a lot more genetic and ethnic homogeneity um, outside of the United States where some of these trials were run, even if they were they weren't placebo controlled, but at least they were um randomized to some extent. The other issue is that when we're trying to save these lives for a disease that we just learned existed five months ago, you know, you have a critically ill person, you're going to try a bunch of things. You're going to try, you know, steroids, and that clearly didn't work. So steroids went out really quickly. And then, you know, you're going to try different modes of ventilation. You're going to try IL-6 inhibitors. You may or may not have access to remdesivir. And now we're getting convalescent serum, which is actually using antibodies from people who've been sick with COVID before and administering that to a a sick person um, as as almost like a transfusion. This is going to clash if you're saying in the midst of this, I want to test whether or not the hydroxychloroquine or the hydroxychloroquine plus the azithromycin is going to work. Um, That being said, um, just to, for, to, to review the saga of what happened, um, hydroxychloroquine is an anti-inflammatory. That's why people who have things like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus use it um, with, under the brand name Plaquenil. Um, it's known to reduce inflammation. It's been used in other inflammatory conditions. It was tried. There was initial data, which looked really good. And now when we're getting more and more data, which is disparate and kind of, you know, they're not e- equivalent trials, all of them. So it's hard to like bunch them all into one thing. But now the the uh, evidence has become more equivocal, so to speak. And there certainly have been bad side effects from hydroxychloroquine in use in both very ill people and non 
intensive care hospitalized patients that have resulted in mainly cardiac problems. So that's why there was enough muddy water in here that at least the NIH came out and said, you know what, there's a couple of things we're going to say, don't use it for now until we get a good controlled trial. Number one is steroids. You don't use steroids with this disease. And the number two thing was hydroxychloroquine. So, Although I will say the steroids are starting to shift. They are poor in the beginning. But after, if you make it past the first seven days, right. uh, steroids do appear to provide a benefit to recovery at that point. So, yeah, and, and that's a little bit paradoxical uh, because for the sake of the patient, yes, they get better quicker. We do know that uh, using those steroids makes them shed the virus longer. So if you're checking for the presence of the virus by swabbing the nose um, and running a PCR on it, so the, the length of time to becoming negative with that test actually extends out. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, but, you know, if I'll take clinical recovery <laughs> over shedding some virus any day. Um, well, I'm glad you bring up the shedding virus thing because that kind of leads us into our next study. Yeah. And by the way, oh my gosh, thank you for giving me the best segues. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know we live to serve, Josh. It's been so long since we've done a good segue, like maybe season one. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just visualized regularly. But you know, people who contract coronavirus, we know are, by and large, even the asymptomatic ones, very, very high shedders. But according to a new study from Germany, you know, that explains kind of this rapid shedding, at the same time, it suggests that while people with mild infection can still test positive for by throat swabs for days and weeks, those who are only mildly sick are probably not still infectious by about 10 days after experiencing symptoms. So this is not the, the asymptomatic carriers. They're saying in people who are showing symptoms, after about 10 days, you are probably not shedding enough virus to be infectious to others. Now, again, just like every other study that we've been bringing up lately, <laughs> this is on a preprint server, meaning it has not yet been peer-reviewed. Yeah, but that's the researchers, scary the researchers monitored the viral shedding, and again, very small study, only nine people infected with the virus, and in addition to these PCR tests that look for fragments of the virus RNA, they also tried to grow out viruses from sputum or mucus, blood, urine, and stool samples. And in trying to grow viruses, that helps teach us how people infect one another. Like what's the most effective method? Is it in the urine? Is it in the blood? Is it just in droplets, which we know? And also how long an infected person poses a risk to others of causing an infection. Importantly, after eight days, the scientists could not grow virus out of throat swabs or sputum from people who had mild confirmed infections. Yeah, that seems to track uh, and it makes some sense that if you have a smaller inoculum or you're able to fight off the virus more quickly so that you're not shedding it, meaning that it's not coming out in your nose um, in detectable levels, uh, that you probably won't get that ill. It's not a perfect correlation, but it makes a decent amount of sense. I would say it allowed them to begin to establish a little bit of a timeline. And they found, you know, in, in uh, COVID, the 
high, high levels of virus emitted from the throat of patients would be from the earliest point in their illness when people are still going around their daily routines. Uh, but after day five, viral shedding dropped significantly in most of the patients, uh, except for two who had more severe courses, and they tended to stop shedding around 10 or 11. This is unlike SARS Classic, which peak shedding of the virus occurred later when it had moved into the deep lungs. And that's also probably what prevented it from spreading so effectively because you'd already be sick and hospitalized when you started to shed a lot of virus. Whereas here, most people are pumping out little viral pollen everywhere they go (laughs) and then they get sick. Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a longer uh, asymptomatic time. Um, And this was, it's another paper that's not really uh, on, on this particular uh, journal club, but we do know that there is that pre-symptomatic time, and a really good paper came out of Singapore to tell us that during that pre-symptomatic time, not not asymptomatic, but pre-symptomatic time, there there is infection that does cause secondary cases. So, yeah, the the kinetics of this thing. We're, we're still learning a lot about it. The more that we can learn in terms of early testing, the better. It's going to take some time for sure. But because we know, for instance, our lessons from influenza, if we did have an adequate antiviral treatment, we'd want to give it earlier rather than later when you're still pre-symptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Now, interestingly, from tracking the virus in stool blood and all these various other things, the researchers were also able to learn that people who are infected begin to develop antibodies to the virus almost as quickly as they begin shedding it. So antibodies start to show up within 6 to 12 days, and that rapid rise may explain why about 80% of these people infected don't develop the severe disease. That might you know, give a clue as to why so many of these were mild cases when we were seeing them because the virus rockets up real fast, but the antibodies may be keeping pace. Ooh. Interestingly, interesting. I wonder why more severe cases, the hypothesis would be maybe they're just not ramping up as much antibody. Why is that? Well, we've got a couple of unique things that we've brought up even in this journal club. I mean, it could be that People's just unique immune systems. Uh, Some people are better at ramping up their own immune systems. It could be that a rapid rise in antibodies is very helpful if you have the L type, and that may be a more common phenotype, versus the H type. That's what, you know, determines when you tip over. Uh, So there's a lot of different things going on that are going to be new areas for study. But that's, that's really what I found most fascinating about this particular one is the beginning of a creation of a timeline for the virus and its course. And that sort of gives us a better idea of where in the course we can jump in with making interventions to decrease the course or either shorten its length or its intensity. And that's how we develop treatments on the fly. Yeah, (laughs) but I, I love the lessons that we're learning from this because this is something we've always known for a long time, right? I get the flu, maybe it's high fever, I'm stuck in bed, coughing, sneezing, and you know, I, I'm out of work for a week. I pass it on to my wife, and maybe she has two or three days of fever and not as much malaise. You know, my daughter catches it, no fever, but lots of respiratory symptoms and diarrhea. That 
interaction between the pathogen and the host and what type of response comes out of that equation, um, there's so much to dissect. It's a really complex cascade. But when you have a brand new introduction of a pathogen like this, you can really pare down and uh, pick this kind of story apart not only for the sake of treatment, but you can learn a lot more about human immunology and inflammatory disease. So this is the part where I'm, I know I'm not supposed to get excited about a pandemic, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is, you know, this is kind you of... You guys, there's so much science yeah. happening right now. <laughs> I know, it's so bad. And everybody cares. <laughs> well, it, well, but I've got to say... This is that's a flip side, which I've got to say, it really refreshes my faith in humanity. I mean, there everybody's listening to, you know, hey, stay at home, take care of each other, stay away from each other, put on a mask. You know, people, I know there's a couple of yahoos here and there, but the by and large, you know, we're doing so well in taking care of each other. And the same thing is true for the scientific community. We're coming together to take care of this. Um, but yeah, this this really is a unique opportunity to study this branch of immunology that we've been chasing it for a long time, but now we have a really unique opportunity to dissect these immune and inflammatory pathways. I will contend also that this might be a new era of virology where we start to learn exactly what you were saying, Josh, when it's a good time to attack the virus, when it's a good time to attack inflammation and find novel ways to treat people that are not just like the way we use antibiotics, where we just, you know, bomb the body with a bunch of chemicals to try to zap out a particular pathogen that we're more nuanced about. You know, again, a pandemic's not the right time, but I'm thrilled that People are as excited about science as I am, and it only took the end of the world for folks to care. <laughs> it is, it's a good time. I'll take what I can get. Yeah. But people are taking care of each other. I'm really, I'm proud of this species right now. We really are taking care of each other at every level. Everyone, well, give yourself a pat on the back for whatever you've been doing. Uh, yeah, that's no, right. No, really, we're all, if. <sighs> Whatever gets you through the day, whether it's listening to this show or devouring an entire box of Oreos in one sitting. <laughs> Don't quite get your hopes too far, you know, ahead of, uh, you know, this whole faith in humanity, because I saw a very interesting headline today mm. um, uh, speculating whether virus could be transmitted through, um, well, passing gas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's... oh, do not even get me started. You know, we're going to have to go through these exercises because this is a novel virus. I, I get it. There's going to be there's going to be a, the occasional weirdo paper like this that shows up. But um, I, I'm happy in the sphere of peer review and this kind of a thing that will you know, I, I'm glad for these theories because even though they're wild and woolly, they kind of get us thinking. But <laughs> we we know that, you know, it's shed in stool. You can detect uh, the stuff in stool. So if you, you know, if you fart like a hippo, I guess you could aerosolize a bunch of it. Um, but I, I think... Okay. You... <laughs> look, look, this all started 
in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Is that no, 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 no. Yeah. This, this all started in Australia when the Australian broadcasting company who puts out a podcast called the Corona Cast, mm-hmm. uh, which serves for that continent, the same function that we over here do at the Travel Medicine Podcast for you. On... Friday, April 17th, they had their guest, Dr. Norman Swan, was asked by an interested caller whether or not the virus could spread through farts. (laughs) (laughs) And and Dr. Swan answered in a way that showed a lot more maturity than I think anyone on this show has thus far been capable of. Oh, he didn't collapse into giggling for 20 minutes straight? (laughs) Well, here we go. His, His response, worthy of Worthy of our hero, Dr. Fauci, is he said, well, luckily, we wear a mask that covers our farts all the time, referring to undergarments and clothing. (laughs) I think that what we do in terms of social distancing and being safe is it's probably not an issue. But if you don't fart close to other people and you don't fart with a bare bottom, it probably is not a high risk. (laughs) And... I and love this, this was followed so up. I love him this already. Was, <laughs> and this was followed up by Dr. Andy Tag, an Australian ER physician, who posted the following follow-up question: So, could bottom-based emissions of someone with corona be silent and deadly? <laughs> <laughs> and and here is and here's the science on it. Curse you guys for making me be the grown-up. <laughs> no, I'm just imagining, you know, because people are getting all weird and crazy. You know, there's there's the occasional set of yahoos that you have to worry about is like getting mad at, you know, just random shit because they don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Look. But uh, no, no, I'm just imagining, you know, like, get those nudists out of our... <laughs> Okay, so here's the thing. Could it be possible? There, There is a little bit of a difference here, and I think Eleanor can back me up on this too. We've detected shedding virus in feces. We don't know yet whether that's transmissible virus. In fact, we're fairly sure it's not. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where all this is coming through. So as long as you are continuing to wear your bottom mask <laughs> and creating an airtight seal. Bottom mask. <laughs> and washing your hands. Yes. Uh, after you go to the bathroom. Yeah. And <laughs> but this is so like... that's that's where it came from. And look, I just want everyone listening to know. I, I would like to point out, I was not the one who brought this up. It's imp- normally, it would 100% be me, and I tried to keep it above the belt. <laughs> Moving on to our, our final study. Yeah, yeah, wrap it up there. <laughs> A lot of us have become armchair epidemiologists mm-hmm. in the time of corona. And... One particular study was looking at how we might be able to analyze our social media connections to predict future outbreaks and track epidemiology. So using anonymous and aggregated data from Facebook uh, to show areas with stronger social ties to two early 
COVID-19 hotspots would then follow up and have more confirmed COVID cases at the time of the follow-up study on March 30th. So the researchers took publicly available raw data from Facebook, who was trying real hard to look not like a supervillain after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Sure. Or I don't think and, they are trying all that hard, actually. Well, they're release they're being more transparent about releasing the data they collect from us. Gotcha. And a group of researchers took this study and looked at Westchester County in New York, as well as Lodi Province in Italy, who are both hotspots in and of themselves. And they looked at the areas, the broad strokes of the social connections and data that these regions had to other areas. And they actually found a lot of the folks who were talking about, oh, I'm going to go, you know, vacation to the equivalent of the Hamptons or whatever the Hamptons is in Italy. Um, <laughs> they created a social connectedness index. Lake Como? That captured... I think it's Lake Como, I think, maybe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like like the governor? What? No, 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 um, no, no not no. Cuomo. Yeah. Como. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> so using this data, they were able to come up with a metric they called the social connectedness index mm. that captures the probability that individuals across two regions that are connected through friendship links on Facebook may help to indicate more physical interactions between the residents in those areas, providing increased opportunity for the spread of communicable disease. Basically, where you're friends with people on Facebook or where your region is friends with people could indicate where the virus is likely to spread next as people go out into the world or try and reconnect with families or try and flee to less populated areas. So it's using social media media data for modeling, which I think is a fascinating expansion of epidemiology. Yeah, there was a, another study a couple weeks ago where, um, you know, after the whole brouhaha of all the Gen Z folks on the beaches for spring break. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they, they took phone, cell phone, uh, I guess, metadata and tracked spread of virus that they brought back to their communities. Which they did that. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was very interesting, too. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that study. That was so, so neat because they could actually, it's a little shady, I got to say, in terms of what we're capable of doing, because I think, Eleanor, that they were using the cell phone because this, some of, a lot of the cell phones track your data anyway. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I think so. <laughs> well, like it, you can make a little map of where you've been if you like pop onto like Google Maps, especially if you're an Android user. The the methods on this obviously were a little was just all raw data analysis. There were no interventions, there was no randomization, but it did show that, you know, social connections to say Westchester and the New York area provided a vector as well as a lot of students in Lodi in the Italian province. Uh, contains Codonio, where the earliest cases were detected, and was at the center of Italy's outbreak. And a bunch of the students and vacationers would all head to Lomb Lombardy and spread it there. So the the authors of the study are very quick to point out that this is not by any means a scientific measure. They actually modeled it as a math variable, where they said, hey, 
using whatever epidemiological studies you do in the future, if you include this social connectedness index, it may help in a modern setting to both predict the virus where you can't do contact tracing, as well as give a more accurate degree of spread in a world that is connected almost as digitally as physically these days. Wow. We're in the matrix. Exactly. <laughs> I want the blue pill at a steak. And a steak. <laughs> I don't think you can have both. Oh, sorry. That was what, because uh, he was eating a fake steak in the matrix when he had the blue pill, didn't he? Yeah. He's like, I know this isn't real. My brain. But you know what? I've had the goop on the ship. I want the steak. Ah, <laughs> <Aww>, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's pretty much all the n- updates of the news that you should know about COVID, or at least what we feel is important. I but do, of course, I have one more for you, if you want. Oh, Another by all one. means, yeah. Well, you know, if I can sneak in something space-related, I always like to do that. So I do have a coronavirus spaceflight connection. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. Is coronavirus coming from Mars? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Don't. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> so right. there, there was some news. It's war of the worlds in reverse. Oh, my God. Exactly. Um there was uh, some. There were some news reports yesterday, or you may not know. There was a recent cruise change on the International Space Station. We had some crew members come back. I think it was over the weekend, and there were some replacements that uh, just were launched up there. And apparently, there was a Russian space official that tested positive for COVID nineteen, who may have had somewhat close proximity to the three astronaut well the astronaut and i think the two cosmonauts that uh launched the space station there's been enhanced uh quarantine quarantine procedures that have been put in place to protect you know these crew before they launch normally they undergo some degree of quarantine before a launch but a lot of that's been enhanced with the you know recent coronavirus so the the official news is that no, you know, this guy was tested positive, minimal risk to the crew, not a problem. Um, so I'm going to assume that's the case, even though we subsequently heard that like there are 30 COVID positive Russians working at the launch site now. And, you know, you didn't see the, uh, the crew members with any face masks or helmets on before launch so we've already learned that viruses grow much better in space or that some bacteria do that's right so let's just hope that uh there are no no adverse consequences well well, eleanor the other study that they're starting to do uh for your field is looking at how will you know studying people in quarantine and their coping strategies while while sheltering in place to model how to prepare humans for long-distance spaceflight. Ah, yes. Yeah, in fact, I just read an article yesterday. Um, There was a a lady who was working on, I think, her PhD on isolation dynamics, and she was supposed to spend time, I think, two weeks at the Mars Desert Research Station that the Mars Society runs. But, you know, all all of those trips and expeditions have been canceled right now. And instead, she actually wrote a an article reflecting on how 
quarantine, these social distancing is, is also kind of an analog for, uh, you know, for Mars, uh, exploration and so forth. So, and there's been some commentary. I think there have been some articles that astronauts have actually, um, published or commented on about coping with, you know, isolation. So yes, so that is definitely out there. Yeah. So, you know, guys, we're all getting ready to go to space. This is exciting. It is. <laughs> leave this leave this planet behind. This one's a lost cause. So let's 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 move on to the next. <laughs> let's move on and ruin um, another one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's let's cheese it, everybody. Cows have come home. Um, so that's it for this week. Of course, there is every possibility that by the time this airs, everything we say will have been outdated and wrong. So bear with us as we try and keep you up to date in these rapidly changing times. But as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, along with links to sources used in researching this episode. Uh, we're on Spotify. We're on Patreon. Those are two great places to say hi, as well as every other social media. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and all our co-hosts and friends of the show. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels and wash your hands. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.